Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 6, we're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, it says, But now he, that's Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God And they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more in that he says, A new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The writer of the book of Hebrews is convinced, convinced, convinced of the superiority of the ministry of Jesus. And I hope you are too. I hope you've come to a place in your life and in your circumstances, regardless of whatever religious circumstance you grew up in. If you grew up in a home where there was some religion or no religion whatsoever, that you've come to the realization that there's something better about Jesus. Jesus and the new covenant are superior to the law in the old covenant. But what about the old covenant and the old promises and the old sacrifices and the old sanctuary and the old priesthood? For the person who grew up in the Jewish tradition, they were going to ask about all of those things. What about the temple? What about the sacrifices? What about the priests? And remember what the writer of Hebrews has convincingly told us, that all of these things have pointed to Jesus, the real Jesus, the Lord Jesus who came from heaven, who took on flesh, who became a human being to defeat the power of death, to redeem humanity, to cleanse from sin, to reconcile to God, to confront and destroy evil. Jesus came so that we could have life. And have it more abundantly. That we could experience freedom. 
We've already begun to understand that our Jesus understands our weakness. He provides grace for us so that we can be faithful to God and to the Lord. Jesus provides a superior revelation. Jesus gives a superior salvation. Our superior priest, Jesus, ministers in a superior place, heaven. Jesus is the author of the new covenant. And the promises of that covenant are more excellent The whole point becomes, we have a new deal with God. And so, we're promised sufficient grace in verses 6 through 9. We're promised an inner change in verse 10. We are promised unlimited blessing in verse 11. We're promised... Cleansing for sin in verse 12. Let's see if we can put this in terms that all of us can understand. Imagine you're a professional athlete. And I know for most of you that's going to be really difficult. But for some of you, think about it for just a moment. You are a professional athlete. You have an agent And it's your agent's job to negotiate the best deal possible in whatever new organization that you're about to join. And you'd like to know, does this organization offer superior benefits? You'd like to know, what are those benefits? If you've ever gone from one place to another, from one job to another, you're wondering, Is this going to be a better job with better benefits? And that's part of the point that's being made here. You are going to get better benefits, better salary, better security. Now let's imagine something that's a little bit easier to imagine. Imagine you are a sinner. And you go, yeah, I can do that. (laughs) This doesn't require a whole lot of imagination. Okay, just for a moment, imagine you're a sinner and you want to have a right relationship with God. You want to go to heaven instead of hell. You've failed miserably at being religious. You've had bad experiences with religion. You've had bad experiences with church. You've had even worse experiences with church people. And you're not good at keeping the rules. Now for some of you, you go, wait a minute, I am good at keeping the rules and I like keeping the rules. (laughs) I got pulled over by a Texas state trooper many years ago. And I'm driving along, and some of you who've driven through Texas, you know that there are speed traps along the way. And you'll see something that says 75 miles an hour, and then within 10 feet, it's 35 miles an hour. (laughs) And so you're going 65, 70 miles an hour, all of a sudden you hit the sign and the red lights are flashing. And the Texas state trooper pulls you over and goes... How dear? 
do you have some ID? And I said, unfortunately, I actually speak Texan. I have no ID what I'm doing here. No, no, ID. Yes, I do have ID, and I give him the ID. He goes, do you, do you realize how fast you were going? And I said, yes, I unfortunately have fallen into your speed trap. And the trooper said, well, think about all the times you speeded and you didn't get caught. Well, this is going to make up for all those other times. And I said, I know this is going to come as a shock and a surprise to you, but I'm, I'm one of those guys who likes to like, obey the rules and obey the law and keep the law. And I got to tell you something. I resent you and your little speed trap. He wrote me the ticket and said, have a nice day. So you fall into one of two categories, don't you? Rule keeper, rule breaker. But maybe there's a conspicuous absence of peace in your life and there's a void in your life and there's a darkness inside of you and it grows larger and deeper and darker and you need a savior. You need someone who will negotiate a better deal for you. And so this writer is inviting you, those of you who are jaded or hurt or frustrated or upset and you've begun to understand that religion really isn't the answer. Jesus offers a contract. Jesus offers a better deal based on better promises. And in the new contract, it's going to be contrasted with the old contract. And your agent, your agent, your agent knows that you're a notorious bad boy or girl. That you are going to require grace. That whatever deal that this agent makes for you, it's going to require a lot of grace. It's going to require the fact that you have a hard heart. And so you're going to need a new heart. You've experienced limited blessing in the past. And now now you're looking for some unlimited blessing. You've experienced the setting aside or the postponing of punishment. And now you're looking for a full pardon, not just to have your sins covered or postponed or kicked down the road. You need cleansing now. But what's the catch? Well, the catch is you're going to have to love and serve your agent. Your agent is going to sign the contract for you. Not with your blood, but with his blood. You see, there's everything, everything, everything is better about the deal that you have with Jesus. Look what it says in verse 6. But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he's also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Look at that word in verse 6, mediator. It also occurs in verse 5. Who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. That there's a type and a picture and a pattern. It appears again in chapter 9, verse 15. It will appear again in chapter 12, verse 24. And the Greek scholar Thayer 
explains the meaning of a mediator. A mediator is one who intervenes between two, either in order to make peace or restore peace or bring friendship or to form a compact or a ratifying covenant. Jesus is the one through his death who restores peace and harmony between God and man. Human beings broke that harmony through sin and rebellion. And so the word was widely, widely used in the Greek world and in the business world of the first century. The word was an interesting word in and of itself. Mesites uh, is the Greek word. And it, and it comes from a root word, mesos. And that meant in the middle. And so it came to mean in that world... A middleman, a person who stood in the middle. The scholar William Barclay discusses the role of the mediator in the ancient world of the, of the, of the first century. He says that this mediator played arbiter. Now, both Greeks and Romans would devote a great deal of time, energy, money in this particular legal role. The arbiter was the person whose duty it was to wipe out the differences between two estranged parties. Usually in the world in which we live in, the arbiter doesn't have that ability. The arbiter asks the two parties to resolve their differences so that you can come together. But in that world and in that culture and in that society, it was the arbiter's responsibility to make the differences go away. And by the way, if the parties were estranged from one another for purposes that had to do with money, you know what the arbiter would do? The arbiter would guarantee payment on, par, on both parts of the parties who were going to come together. Imagine an arbiter who says, you know, this person owes me $10,000. And the arbiter says, look, whatever else happens here, I promise you that you'll get your money. I will make sure that the debt is paid. The second meaning was a sponsor. Again, in our culture and society, the word sponsor has lost most of its meaning. There are groups that get together that sometimes involve what's called a sponsor. But a sponsor in that culture or society was a person who guaranteed in the sense of grievance that whatever the problem is, the sponsor would make it good. Imagine you're accused of a crime. And whatever the crime is, the sponsor agrees to guarantee whatever the problem is. And this becomes part of the point. Jesus guarantees our debt. You see, the Bible says that human beings owe God a debt. What is the debt that you owe? You owe God the debt of perfection. The problem is each and every one of you have failed. And you might say, you don't know me well enough to say that. Okay, I won't speak to you. I'll speak to everybody else in the room. 
Who would have guessed that we would have the only church service where one perfect person actually walks in the door and ruins my illustration? But here's part of the point. Jesus guarantees the debt. Now, having understood that, look at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Pause. What's going on in this text? The author is quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Old Testament or you weren't with me when we went through our 50 plus weeks of God predicting judgment, in Jeremiah chapter 31, Verse 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant is significant in the time of the covenant, the parties of the covenant, the contrast of the covenant. So when the writer is quoting Jeremiah chapter 31, it's as if he's opening up the scroll of Jeremiah and he's saying to everyone, turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, and read with me what is happening The passage begins because finding fault with them. This becomes so very important and you might miss it. The fault wasn't with the law and the fault wasn't with the covenant. The fault was with, what does it say? Read it. With who? With them. Who? The Jewish people. Why? Their failure to obey the law. Their failure to honor the promise. Pause again. Did God make an impossible standard for a sinful people to follow? Remember what the purpose of the law is all of a sudden once again. The law proves that you're a lawbreaker. The law proves that there's something wrong. The law proves that there's something desperately wrong with us. 
the standard that God has always required has always been perfection. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Why? Because you need a new deal. Why? Because you've broken the old deal. Why? Because there's something desperately wrong with us. Six times from verse 8 to verse 13, it says... I will. If you're one of those kind of people who takes notes, I want you to just, again, pause for a moment and look at verse 8 where it says, I will make a new covenant. Verse 10, I will make with, with the house of Israel. Verse 10, I will put my law in their mind. Verse 10 again, I will be their God. Verse 12, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Verse 12, I will remember no more. When the Lord says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. What's going on? He's making promises that he is going to initiate something that must come to pass because he's the one who's doing the initiating. The moment that the Lord says, I will, he's making a promise. And the moment that he makes a promise, he's going to keep the promise. And remember, promises fall into two broad categories. Conditional, that you've got to do something. And unconditional, where you don't have to do anything. Which kind is this one? It's unconditional. He's going to initiate it. He is going to bring about a new covenant. Now, in the Bible, there's eight covenants. There's what's called the Edenic covenant, which God makes a promise in the Garden of Eden. And then there's the Adamic covenant, where he makes a deal with Adam and Eve. And then there's the Noahic covenant, where he makes a deal with Noah. And then there's the Abrahamic covenant, where he makes a deal with Abraham. And then there's the Mosaic covenant, where he condemns all people because all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And then there is the Palestinian covenant in Deuteronomy 30 verse 3, which secures the restoration and the conversion of Israel. There's a Davidic covenant that is talked about that would be fulfilled in the family of David. But as Jesus is relating to all of these different covenants and he talks about this new covenant... The focus that is going to be on this covenant that's going to be different from every other covenant in the covenant of Moses, the focus is on what human beings would do. In the covenant that is coming about by Jesus, by the life of Jesus and, and the ministry of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, the, the, the focus on the covenant is what God is going to do. Have you ever had a relationship with someone and they said, what are you going to do for me? How are you going to make my life easier? How are you going to make my life simpler? Or have you ever had a relationship with a person who says, you know what? This isn't about 
you doing something for me. This is about me doing something for you. And this becomes the very definition of grace. Do you remember in Noah's covenant where it says, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord? God was going to judge the world because all of human of humanity had strayed and had fallen short and had distanced themselves from God. And so the Lord decides to act in grace. The old covenant insisted that people do something for God. And now in the New Testament, the new covenant insists that God is going to do something for you in Christ. And so that's the emphasis. And this becomes the point. Because whatever you believe about religion and whatever you believe about relationship and whatever you believe about what your problem is and the solution to your problem, if you're honest with yourself, you probably have come to the conclusion that if things are going to be different for you, you're going to need heavy, extravagant, luscious, overwhelming waves of grace in order to make things work out for you and God. I had a caller on my radio program today who was confused and upset and disappointed. She was living a life of non-assurance because she's always, she, she struggles with sin and, and, and there seems to be this reoccurring theme in her life where she fails and comes back and fails and comes back and fails and comes back. And so it caused her to lose confidence and assurance in her relationship with the Lord. And it never occurred to her to think about the problem of human sin and the problem that, that it is, that, that sin is strong and the human nature towards sin and our proclivities towards sin are strong. But God in his grace and his mercy has given you a savior. A savior who's willing to give you abundant grace. And so the fault wasn't in the covenant or even in the law, but rather the people's failure to obey the law. Paul said that the law is spiritual, but people are carnal. Paul wrote that we're sold under sin in Romans chapter 7 verse 14, and that the law was weak through the flesh. The problem wasn't God's standard or even the weakness of the revelation concerning the law. The problem was and is and continues to be Human nature, human weakness. So, how do you deal with human nature and human weakness? You need a God who'll give you grace, real grace, unmerited favor, pure favor. What the law could never do. What the law could never do because of man's weakness, God would do. God will do it through Calvary's cross. In order for human beings to be saved, it's going to require a spiritual intervention on the part of God, in the person of Christ. We sang it today. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. We sometimes will sing another song. This is amazing grace. This is unchanging love. That you would take my place. That you would bear the cross. That you would lay down your life. That I could be set free. Grace is God's special favor. Freely given to undeserving people. 
to whatever this new covenant is, it's going to require huge amounts of grace for people who mess up. And you might be thinking, that sounds exactly like me. Well, l- let, me, let me make sure I understand this. Remember I asked you earlier to imagine you're a sinner? And now I want you to imagine you're a saint? Well, what's the difference between a sinner and a saint? The saint is the person who has been relieved of guilt and relieved of the debt and relieved of the obligations. D.L. Moody used to say, the law tells me how crooked I am. And then grace comes along and straightens me out. And then in verse 9, look what it says. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers... The writer is basically, as he's quoting Jeremiah, he's contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. The old covenant was based on obedience to the law. The new covenant is going to be based on grace that's given to you by the Messiah. So not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. What covenant is he talking about? That's in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, it says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So the Lord says, Obey my voice, keep my covenant. Big question. How did they do? They kept the covenant and they lived happily ever after. Amen. I know, for those of you who've read the Bible, you go, no, that's not what I read. Actually, what I read was these stiff-necked people resisted God, rebelled against God, resisted God, rebelled against God, disobeyed God. Did the Jewish people honor God's covenant? The right answer is the Jewish people agreed to God's terms and then failed to keep the covenant. The Lord says they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them says the Lord. You see, the Lord is still being gracious and the the Lord is still being kind. He said, "I, I was a husband to them. I was like a guy who was hopelessly and helplessly in love with a gal and I loved her and I loved her and I loved her. But instead of loving me back, She lived a life of betrayal, dishonesty, distance. And the writer says this new contract is going to be different from the old. 
In that instead of being external, it was going to be internal. Look what it says in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So what's this new deal? What does it involve? Look what the text says. Remember, he's quoting Jeremiah. It's repeated here, after those days. After which days? After those days. After which days? What what days is he talking about? The days that he's talking about... (laughs) Okay, there's two kinds of days. The days of Israel's obedience and the days of Israel's disobedience. How long were the days of the obedience? Not long. How long were the days of disobedience? Real long. So when he says, after those days, he's talking about the days of Israel's disobedience. There's going to come a day of Israel's disobedience. We all know about Israel's disobedience. Then God will put his law in their minds so that they'll know him. And they'll put it in their hearts so that they will love him. Here's what, here, here's what the Lord is saying. I'm going to create an arrangement where I will be dear to you in your heart. And near to you in the very real world in which you live. Dear in the heart. Near in whatever circumstance you find yourself in. That's what it means when he says, I will be their God. In the Old Testament, the repeated warning If you read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and you see the encounter that God has with the people in the Old Testament, invariably the Lord will say, stand back, back off. In the past, the Lord would say, back off. The law says, stand back. Why does the Lord say, keep your distance, stand back, stay away? It's because there was this huge gulf between God's holiness and man's sinfulness. So imagine you have a deal, you have a covenant, where the basis of that covenant is you have a holy God who says, stand back. Keep your distance. Don't come close. But now the Lord says, I want to have a new deal and a new covenant where I can invite you to draw near to me. Instead of standing back and staying away, you get to come close. In the past, Moses wrote God's law on the tablets of stone, but now he's going to write it on the flesh of their heart. The law says, stand back. Grace says, would you please come a little bit closer? Imagine you have a relationship with someone, and this is the basis of the relationship. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. 
And then you have a relationship that says, please touch me. Come close. Draw near. This is what the Bible is in effect saying. The prophet Jeremiah sees into the future. He sees into a time when the Messiah comes. He sees the blessings of Messiah's future kingdom where God puts his law inside the heart. How is he going to do this? In the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 27, it says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Imagine a world, imagine a world where someone says to you, you should be a Christian. And you say to them, you, you don't understand. I'm not good at being good. I'm fairly good at being bad. You should be a Christian. No, you know, being a Christian means I have to be good and I have to go to church. I have to read my Bible. I have to love people. I have to love them and care about them. And in moments of honesty and self-reflection, I begin to understand that I don't really love them and I don't really care about them. Why? Because there's something wrong with me in my heart. So in order to be a Christian, you're going to need a new heart. Yeah. And the Lord says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll give you a sensitive heart, a compassionate heart. Paul alludes to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, where he says, do we begin to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation or recommendation to you or letters of recommendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. People were arguing, complaining that Paul wasn't a real apostle, that he didn't really come from God. And Paul's, they said, give us your credentials. Prove to us that you're really a person who came from God. And Paul basically says, you're my credentials. What do you mean? Who told you about Jesus? Well, you did, Paul. Who told you about the story about Jesus, about his love and about his, his, his mercy and his grace and how he died on the cross for our sin and he rose from the dead for our justification and that if you would believe that, if you would receive it, if you would walk in it, you would have a different life. And then we believed Paul and received Christ. And Paul writes, you are manifestly an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh that is of the heart. He contrasts some sort of external expectation with an internal transformation. Paul's argument is, I told you about Jesus. I gave you the gospel and you believed it and your whole life was different. Paul, in effect, sees himself as, a God, as God's secretary, writing the word of God into the lives of God's people. And he reveals the truth that every single Christian is an epistle of Christ being read by all people. Someone said, 
You're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithful or true, just what is the gospel according to you. I love that. That's what Paul's talking about. That when you live your life in that real world, when you live your life in that real world, when people see you, when they look at you, when they hear you speak, they want to know whether or not the gospel is true. They want to know whether or not you really have a change of heart, whether or not you've really been cleansed, whether or not you've really experienced forgiveness and hope. In the new covenant, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to Jesus. You're not employed simply by your boss. You're employed by him. Because you're a Christian, guess what? You possess everything that he possesses. And so there's a change of heart, but there's also the new witness. There's widespread salvation. And so, again, Jeremiah peeks into the future, and this writer repeats it. None of them, none of them shall teach his neighbor. None his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. What's he talking about? He's talking about a new witness. He's talking about a widespread salvation. What in the world is he talking about? Is this some sort of universal salvation? No, no. I think what the writer is saying is that there's going to come a time when people will experience and know about Jesus. They'll experience the knowledge of God and the story of Jesus and the message of Jesus will be universal. There's going to come a time When the knowledge and the truth about Jesus will become greater and greater and greater. And I'm also going to suggest that in a future kingdom, in a millennial kingdom, it's going to come to full fruition. Do you want to know why? Imagine a world where Jesus has returned. Imagine a world where Jesus occupies the throne of his father David. Imagine everybody now knows. Remember how the Bible says that Jesus will come back? Well, now he's back. Remember how the Bible says that God's going to keep his promise to the Jews? Well, now he's keeping his promise to the Jews. It's like that stupid Geico commercial. Do you realize that you can save 15%? And they go, everybody knows that. Hey, do you know that Jesus Christ is the Lord and he's ruling and reigning in Jerusalem? Everybody knows that. It was hard to miss when he came in the clouds with a myriad of his angels and the Antichrist and the false uh, prophet was burnt up and God has established the truth concerning the reality of who he is and what he will do. All shall know me. Finds a similar statement by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 11 verse 9 where it says, the earth, the earth shall be Filled with the knowledge of God. Maybe you experienced the same thing I experienced. When I became a Christian, when I realized that Jesus was the Lord, and I thought, 
you mean all the stuff in the Bible is true? And then I started reading it, and I'm going, you mean when the Bible talks about this stuff, all this stuff is true. There really was an Adam and an Eve. There really was a gigantic flood. There really was a judgment. There really is a God who's trying to speak to human beings. Sin is a very real problem. And Jesus is the very real solution to the problem. And so we see a new standing and a wonderful cleansing. Look what it says in verse 12. For I, I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness. By the way. If you're going to be a part of a new covenant and a new kingdom, are you one of those people who grace is going to be an important part of the relationship and mercy is going to be an important part of the relationship? And the Lord says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And look what it says. And their sins. And their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. What? What happened to the old covenant? It disappeared. What happens to sin in the new covenant? What happened to sin in the old covenant? It was covered. What happens to sin in the new covenant? It's cleansed. What's the difference between covering and cleansed. I think most of you know. Most of you know the answer. I want you to re- imagine once again. As difficult as it is. to Just imagine for a minute that you're a sinner. And you really believe that. But you're trying to hide your sin. You're trying to cover your sin. You're trying to pretend that the sin isn't real. That it doesn't really exist. That it's not really there. And so you don't talk about it. And you don't bring it up. And you don't point to it. Because it's like that odd mole. In that disgusting place. And imagine you're starting to get old. And you're growing hair where you don't want it. And, and you're losing hair where you do want it. And, and everything seems to be going in the wrong direction. In the next chapter, the writer is going to remind the reader that there's a remembrance made of sins, but there was no remission of sin in the old covenant. The blood of bulls and goats could cover sin. And the word cover, by the way, is, is, is a word that has a synonym atonement it meant to cover but the blood of Jesus the blood of the lamb the blood of Jesus and the blood of of the lamb would take away sin think of this promise if this was the only promise the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin our sin is forgiven our sin is forgotten I know what each and every one of you should be saying. Sign me up for the new deal. What a blessing. What a promise. Jesus is the sin bearer. You can lay down your sin burden. In Christ, grace. In Christ, mercy. Do you know what the law required? 
every transgression and disobedience had to receive a just reward. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 2. In the law, you had to get what you deserved. In the law, the law regarding sacrifice, there was covering. But in Christ, cleansing. The sacrifices outlined and prescribed in the law made a person ceremonially clean. That means it qualified him him or her to be able to participate in the religious life of the nation. But the cleansing was always external. It was always external. It never was internal. It never penetrated the heart and changed the heart. It never provided moral cleansing. It never provided a clear conscience. I don't know if you've ever done something horrible. And someone graciously said to you, I forgive you. And you were glad that they did. But it didn't make the pain go away. And it didn't make the guilt go away. And it didn't make the impurity go away. And the only way that all of that stuff was going to go away is that you needed a new heart. And so in the new covenant... He says, in that he, that's the Holy Spirit in the book of Jeremiah, in that he says a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What he's saying is, in that he says, the very fact that he, that's God's Holy Spirit, through the prophet Jeremiah, says a new covenant means that the first covenant is obsolete. Okay, so when did this new covenant begin? Our first clue is in Luke twenty-two twenty. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The second clue of when it began, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take it. Eat it. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant began with the shedding of his blood. The old covenant, temporal. The new covenant, eternal. The old covenant, mediated by Moses. The new covenant, mediated by Jesus. Someone will say, well, wait, 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 wait. Jeremiah 31, 31 applies to the Jew. The new covenant was promised to the Jew. It was promised to Israel. It's promised to the Jews. What right do we have to say that we get to participate in this covenant? When Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit came upon the believers in the upper room, the new covenant was in full force 
Jesus lives. He dies. He comes back to life. He ascends into heaven. And Israel says, wow, we were really wrong about this guy, Jesus. He really is the Lord. He is the Lord of life. He is the promised Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of the prophets. Or they said, no, we still don't believe him. We still don't believe it. We still don't believe it. We still don't believe it. By the way, did the people of Israel, by and large, believe the message of the gospel? Or did they reject the message of the gospel? They reject. That's the right answer. God raises up Paul. Paul gives the gospel to the gospel, to the the Gentiles. Were there pockets of Gentiles who said, I believe this. I, I believe it. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember? Part of the challenge was, can Gentiles even be saved? Is that even possible? Gentiles saved? That doesn't seem to make sense. But the Bible says that Gentiles can be saved. And God, by his Holy Spirit, extends the message and the gospel and the covenant to all of humanity. Paul writing that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, but both Jew and Gentile become one new man by the power of the Holy Spirit. Will the nation of Israel... Accept their Savior. The Bible says in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, that the nation will look upon him whom they have pierced and they'll weep. In what sense? Is there going to come a time when the Jewish people are going to realize? We've made a gigantic mistake and Jesus really is the Messiah. I think that the answer is yes, I really do. So the writer uses this image of something growing old and temporal and fading. Both old and vanish away comes from the same root word. It means something old is something that was in existence for a long time, that's antiquated and worn out. And so when the author uses the term twice, old, Ready to vanish away. The new has replaced the old. The outdated is updated. The writer of Hebrews didn't update it. God did. That's the point that he's making. It isn't a bunch of people got together and says, you know what, the old covenant's passed away. Let's create a brand new covenant. The writer of Hebrews says, no, no, no. We're not going to invent a new covenant. If we're going to have a new covenant, God's going to have to give us the new covenant. And the writer of Hebrews says that's exactly what God has done in the person of Christ. The old covenant, invalid, obsolete. The old covenant, delivered by Moses at Sinai. The new covenant, delivered by Jesus at Calvary's cross. The old covenant, Types and shadows of earlier sacrifices. The new covenant, an eternal sacrifice. The old covenant, old, obsolete. The new covenant, eternal. So why turn back to the law? 
Why go back to the temporal? Why embrace the old? When it says, and growing old and ready to vanish away. You know, most conservative scholars believe that when the writer of Hebrews wrote this book, it's about 65 AD. Maybe. In 66 AD, the Jewish people are going to revolt against Rome. By the time 70 AD takes place, the temple is going to be destroyed. The sacrificial system is going to be gone. Temple, gone. Sacrifices, gone. Jewish priesthood, gone. It's going to be, it's going to change. Everything's going to to change. And so this writer says, Jesus will guarantee your debt. Jesus will give you grace. Jesus will give you a new heart. Jesus will give you a new birth. The old agreement was mediated by Moses. The new is by Jesus. The old was ruined by Israel's sin. The old was chiseled onto rocks. The new is restored by Jesus' sacrifice. The new agreement will be written inside of your heart. You know, I heard the story of a little boy who grew up very, very, very poor. And he had an accident. And he was taken to a hospital. And after he was made comfortable by the nurse, they brought him a great big glass of milk. And they sat it right next to him. And he looked at it. And he looked at it. But he wouldn't pick it up. Because he'd never seen a glass so big and he had never seen it so full. And when he did see a glass of milk, it was always half empty and he always had to share it with his brothers and and sisters. And the nurse said, drink. And the little boy said, how deep can I drink? And the nurse said, you can drink it all. You can drink it all. And once you're done drinking it all, there's plenty more where that came from. You see, this is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get you to understand about grace. He's trying to get you to understand that if you have never, ever, ever experienced the satisfaction that comes from having more than you could possibly have or experience, and then once you're done with that, there's more, and there's more, and there's more. Imagine you bring a homeless person to lunch or dinner, and you might think, That that's grace. But you would be wrong. Imagine the same homeless person beat you up. And after beating you severely, you said, hey, can I buy you dinner? That's grace. That's grace. You see, grace isn't just simply doing something nice for someone. Grace is something that takes place after you have hurt, injured, and abused someone. And that's what the Bible says that you've done to God. 
hurt, injured, abused. But the Lord says, I love you. And I want you near me. So here's what I'm going to do. I am going to come into your heart and I'm going to come into your mind and I'm going to lavish you with grace and mercy so that everything can be different so that we can walk together into a future that I will secure. And now you have a tiny, tiny understanding of what the writer's trying to say. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would come to appreciate the fact that Jesus guarantees our debt, that Jesus gives us grace, mercy, a new birth, a new heart, that everything has an opportunity to be different, that this isn't religion by any stretch of the imagination. This is a transformation and an opportunity to walk into the future and be given everything, everything, everything that we need in order to survive and have a real relationship forever. And so, Lord, I pray for these men and women, and I pray for that person who has struggled, 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 who has resisted grace resisted mercy and tried to find comfort in religion. Lord, I pray that they would say, that's not going to satisfy. We can't drink from an empty cup and we can't love from an empty heart. Our heart's the cup. So fill it up so that we can drink. Satisfy us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.